the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 3, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya. And we're here together in person. <laughs> we have a very special episode today. We're excited to be recording from Austin at uh, AIM 23. We are sitting down in person to talk to our guest, Dr. Utibe Essien, around how to network as a clinician educator, and also about his plenary on racism in medicine. Before we dive into that, Eric, could you remind listeners what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we are so pumped to be sitting down with Dr. Tube Essien, or as I call him, Tubes, who gave the amazing opening plenary, uh, History Has Its Eyes on You, Race and Justice in Academic Medicine. And in today's episode, we'll be talking with him about this important uh, plenary session and topic, as well as diving deep into how to network as a clinician educator at a clinician educators conference. Now, how meta is that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Utibe Essien is a national award-winning internal medicine physician, an assistant professor of medicine at UCLA, and a health disparities researcher at the VA Center for the Study of Healthcare Innovation, Implementation, and Policy. He received his MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York and his MPH from Harvard Medical School of Public Health. He completed residency and a research fellowship in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. His research focuses on racial and ethnic disparities in the use of novel medications and technologies, especially in treating heart disease. So without, so further, without ado, further ado, let's get, let's to, get it. to it. Dr. Essien, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We like to start with some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Um, to start with, are you okay, Dr. Essien, if we call you by your first name today? Definitely first name and or nickname. Perfect. <laughs> well, Utibe, could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself and maybe share something outside of medicine? Sure. Uh, I am a general internist and a health disparities researcher um, based at the UCLA now. Um, fun non-medicine fact is I'm the proud child of immigrants, uh, proud New Yorker, and proud Hamilton fan. I think that was three facts. That's amazing. Oh, that's like, that's just the, we're just scraping the bottom. There's more. I know there's more facts coming. Well, since we are at AIM this year, I wonder, Tubes, what has been your favorite part of joining AIM? So the community was really special. Um, I've been at a few different institutions since graduating medical school. And so it's been really special to see people from my different walks of life, from residency, from my first job. Um, so that's been really neat to be a part of this community. And I know you and I know you love reading a good book. So what are you reading right now? Oh, great question. So this has been a horrible year for reading for me, sadly, with <laughs> my recent move. But um, the one book that I am reading is called No Wahala. Um, Wahala means like trouble or drama. And it's like a Nigerian um, kind of slang term. And it's about these four Nigerian women growing up in London and talking about their, their drama and their lives. It's a fun book. Thanks. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. 
Uh, maybe in the interest of time, we'll just jump right into a case. Um, Yuri, do you want to start us off? For sure. So we have a case from Cashlock Memorial of Jasmine, who's a second year medical student on her way to attend an interest group meeting for internal medicine. And there's a few faculty there who are going to be sharing their career paths, giving advice. And she's going to that because Jasmine thinks internal medicine is what she's most likely going to do for her career. Her roommate told her it's really important to network at those kind of meetings, but Jasmine realized she has no idea what that means. Networking was not part of any pre-med courses she went to in college and she wonders doesn't she need an MBA to optimally network and she texts you tubes her four-year long coach longitudinal coach and small group facilitator to see if she can stop by your office on the way to the interest group meeting to just pick your brain about how to best network and you notice that you do have 15 minutes before your next zoom meeting and so you say yeah Jasmine come on by so I can imagine, knowing you, uh, that you get a bunch of these types of texts, tweets, emails every day, possibly every hour. And I guess before we get into the conversation of what it would look like to talk to Jasmine, um, I wonder how you share kind of these types of requests for your time. Wow, that is a uh, amazing question. Um, first of all, I think noticing that I have 15 minutes between Zooms would be a terrible time to try and schedule <laughs> a meeting. So um, tricky case, but again, we are all very busy and so it's probably just real life. Um, so that's one thing that I've really um, been very thoughtful about doing is making time for um, for mentoring and for teaching uh, within my schedule. Um, I have uh, Thursday meeting days that I kind of curated over the last several years, so definitely take some time um, and really try to like block my meetings onto Thursdays. Um, thanks to amazing support, both when I was at Pitt and now at UCLA, I have some administrative support to help with scheduling meetings. Um, and I think those two tricks are really helpful to not be overwhelmed uh, by some of these mentorship meetings that are so critical for us, life-giving for us, and of course, helpful for our mentees. Yeah, well, thank you, Otibe, for kind of highlighting that it is important to pay attention to protecting your own time and making sure it's a time that actually works for you as well. Because I think as Yuri and I were just discussing earlier today, something that's sometimes hard to do. Um, if you do find a time that works well for you and you are meeting with Jasmine, putting yourself in the shoes of Jasmine's coach, how would you approach this conversation? Yeah, I think for me, the important thing is to be genuine about it. You know, networking is not just about getting a bunch of emails and um People don't exchange phone numbers, really, just emails and LinkedIn's or Twitter's, whatever we exchange these days um, of people. But it's really about your purpose. And so being genuine about what you're looking for. So Jasmine um, said, you know, she had to get an MBA and intern in a, to be able to network. But what are some of her interests, whether they're clinical, whether they're research, she wants to go into IM as every amazing human should. Uh, and so what are the things that excite her about? Um, I am. So being intentional and genuine about her interest and um, uh, and her interest and about herself. Um, and I think the second thing will be really to have your elevator talk, which is, you know, cheesily uh, phrased uh, fra um, um, word, but it's really something that is super helpful as we're preparing to network with people. So what's the one liner like you guys asked me or the two or three things that we think can strum up conversation with whoever we're meeting? Hey, my name is Jasmine. I'm an ex medical student. I'm have interest in this. And some people are going to be like, cool, nice to meet you. Walk away. Some are going to ask further questions about it. Um, and I think those two tips are really helpful to be able to make the networking um, conversation a little less stressful. 
I love that because I feel like the elevator pitch is something that we can both do in an elevator and also, <laughs> you know, at whatever meetings we go to. I wonder, too, in the 15 minutes, let's say you have that you, you know, maybe unfortunately planned in between Zoom meetings. Do you ever set up for Jasmine or for whoever you're talking to just why networking is actually important or why even do that? If let's say you don't have an MBA and you don't need that to network well, what's the kind of purpose of networking in medicine? So really great question. Um, networking is so important. Um, I went to my first conference as a second year medical student. It was a double AMC meeting that my medical education dean invited me to. So Dr. Marty Grayson, shout out to her. Um, and she was like, hey, you should go to this meeting. You'll meet a number of other medical students. At the conference, I had a chance to meet people beyond just other medical students. I got to meet these faculty members who were also interested in health disparities, which I was just starting to create a little budding interest in. Oh my God, baby tubes. I know, a little, <laughs> little tubes. 2010 shout out. Um, and really, again, those conversations have like since inspired the work that I do today. And there were people that I met that I ultimately met on the interview trail two years later when I applied for residency. And so I was able to kind have an in in those early conversations because of conversations I had prior. So, so important to really build relationships. Um, and again, try, I try to make it less about that, that sometimes uncomfortable word of networking, but it's really building resources, building teams, building community um, to hopefully be able to impact our work in the future. You just never know who's going to transform your career. I love that. You're building a community. It's like your kind of network of people, um, mm -hmm. not to use the network word again, but <laughs> it is your kind of like you've created a support system in a way that's yeah. um, for career development. And say Jasmine's feeling a little shy. She's a little introverted. She's worried about, you know, talking to these attendings. There's so much going on. She doesn't want to take up their time. She just doesn't know how to like get that conversation going. How do you kind of guide her through that. You mentioned having the elevator pitch and maybe, you know, two things that she's interested in. Do you have any other tips for helping students or faculty feel more comfortable with feeling confident to network and how to build that if they're not really confident, like kind of some tips of what to actually do? So back at Pitt, I was the director for a medical student training program that we had for uh, medical students from diverse backgrounds interested in research. Um, and one of the topics that I had a chance to lead was about building your brand, which a lot of it was about like how to be good on social media. But literally, we had like practice sessions on how to have a network session, like how to give your elevator pitch. And so it was a lot on Zoom over the last couple of years, but we would literally have people like walk me through how you meet that um, senior faculty member that you've always looked up to and read their research. So I think literally like role playing that out is important and helpful. Um, again, we all have met people and all the time, like for Jasmine to get into <laughs> medical school, she probably had an interview. She probably had to interact with a person she didn't know before. She's interacting with patients perhaps on the wards. And so we know how to strum up conversation and hopefully that flow kind of feels natural during these networking sessions as well. Um, appreciate that we are all, in, in a lot of ways, medicine and academic medicine expects us to be extroverts, like always be showy and flashy and really personable. But a lot of people aren't that and they're not going to feel comfortable walking up to someone and asking them about their golf game. And so really, again, being as genuine as possible to herself um, and recharging at the end of the conference when she's feeling spent from all those conversations. Yeah. Well, I love that you're also telling people to remember the power of role play and kind of getting that um, practice, kind of deliberate practice to get better at a skill. One of the 
kind of maybe frameworks for that elevator pitch, much of what you're saying that we had read, you know, involves sharing your name. It's kind of the now approach, like name, organization, and like, what's the what? So sharing your name, sharing your role or your organization, and then what do you want to talk about? Which I think puts a different spin on the elevator pitch because it's more, you know, it doesn't necessarily say, and I'm interested in research on, you know, pharmacoequity. It says, you know, I, I would love to talk to you about your research on pharmacoequity. So I think, I wonder if, um, um, that's kind of a strategy that you've heard used or if um, this is just like another skill that people can work on developing? Yeah, great question. Um, the I can't remember which book I read this in. It might be about like how to get people. There's some book about like how to get people like you or something, which win friends and influence people. Exactly. Or? You mean, yeah. you mean not my diary? You're talking about something else? Oh, sorry. Yes. Okay. Uh, Mira's Facebook page. Yeah, exactly. Um, We're still doing Facebook, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how to win friends and influence people, which is a horrible title, I feel like, but it's very important. Um, and I think the biggest lesson that I learned when I read that book was you need to get people to talk about themselves in every setting, whether whether it's our patient on the wards or it's another attending that you're meeting at a conference. We all love to talk about ourselves. It's natural. Only people like Eric can actually get people to talk about themselves. Uh, <laughs> and so really people want to tell you what they're doing, what they're working on. And I think if you can build that relationship early, um, early on and get draw people out, you can then start to talk about yourself as well. Um, and to be honest, sometimes that does take some prep work. Like you're um, going to your conference app to seeing who's actually attending and going to a couple of websites to go and read their profiles. Sometimes meetings like these have like formal mentorship um, opportunities like the SGIM conference that we often all go to here. Um, and so really taking advantage of those and in some ways like doing your prep work, your homework before you even get to the one-on-one -one -one conversations. Yeah, I love that. It feels like the kind of true recipe that we need to approach both a meeting and even, you know, that networking that happens informally, you know, at a buffet line. I don't know what buffet we're going to, but apparently <laughs> if we are at a conference buffet, maybe, um, or where, I don't know, Golden Corral. The Do continent. people still go to that? I don't know. <laughs> the continental breakfast line. <laughs> yes, that's what yes. it is. The hotel <laughs> breakfast. But I guess the other part, Tubes, that's interesting to me is what do you do after that conversation? So you've kind of maybe given them your elevator pitch or, or like you said, after ask them to kind of talk about themselves. Is there something, you know, people call this, I guess, growing the garden, which mm. I find an interesting metaphor, but um, what happens after that actual conversation and that kind of developing the relationship? How do you maintain that? Yeah, you have to follow up. And this is like, um, you know, networking 101, I think like no one is going to remember you from like the business card that you handed out or the email that you sent in a conference. We all have all these notes and these programs and on the back of receipts that we're trying to get our reimbursements from. But you have to follow up. And it's like, again, we're old enough to have sent like letters like, thank you so much for interviewing me in medical school. Um, fortunately, now it's all email or like the DM on Twitter. Um, but in whatever way you can follow up with folks that you meet, it's really hard to do sometimes. It's time, it's energy, it's effort. Maybe on the flight back home for Jasmine, she's firing off those emails, even though she just wants to watch, um, you know, Mission Impossible 4 for the eighth time. Shadow and bone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but really, it's all about the follow-up. And I think that's a space that that's really helped me. It's just like so important to do that um, follow-up. And again, not everyone is going to reply to the first follow-up email. Perhaps your second follow-up email is the year before the conference. Hey, we got to meet last year. Um, would love a chance to grab a coffee with you. And then again, you're tending that garden or building that community um, of, of networkies. 
That's great. Yeah. And um, when you send those emails, like, the, I mean, that was a great example of we're both going to be at this conference. Let's plan for coffee. If you're not finding a time when you're actually in the same space together, do you try to come up with a specific ask when you send that email of like, I have this idea, how would I get involved in a project? Or could you introduce me to someone else that you're affiliated with? Or should it be very specific like that? Or kind of just, you know, I'm still excited about this topic. Would love to hear what you're working on now or something. Yeah, I think there's varying types of emails. You know, the um, the check-in email where you have a specific Maybe not a specific ask, but you just want to reconnect after the meeting. It's been six months since we got to meet at that conference. I have a couple of questions that I'm really interested in helping, getting your support with. Can we find a time to connect? I think that's helpful. Um, the really specific ask, just trying to work through a you know methods part of my research study. I think that's helpful. But I'm all about the like casual check-in too. Like you know, we met last year. I know I understand you're not attending the meeting this year. Here are a few things that I've been working on and I was able to publish this abstract. I'm actually going to be presenting at the conference this year. Um, and I do that with everyone <laughs> these days, like my chief of medicine, I send them updates. And again, I meet with them more regularly than this a conference. Um, but like my chair of medicine, I send them updates around what I'm working on. Um, when I was at Pitt, I would send our dean of our med school like updates who I'd met like once, but I was like, I want this person to know that like their faculty member is doing XYZ thing. Um, and so again, I'm all about the casual check-in because you really just don't know how those um, those check-ins, those follow-ups are really going to make a difference in the future for you. I also love that because a lot of us don't take the time to say, hey, like acknowledge me and the work I've done. And, and also we may be doing all this work, but no one sees it. Or maybe the people who kind of are re-upping your contract or who you're checking in with for your annual meeting don't see it. So I really love how you're naming, like, I'm going to share these accomplishments with the folks who, you know, I am connecting with. Um, Tubes, have we missed any key steps or kind of the ones that you see as part of your recipe for effective networking, especially in academic medicine? Yeah, I think, again, we've talked about kind of the nervousness and awkwardness of it. I think in some ways, like in many things we do in medicine, they're hard and uncomfortable the first time. Like we all can picture that first DRE we ever did in med school, a little awkward. Um, <laughs> but hopefully we are able to walk into that room and say, Mr. X, we need to do this right now. Um, and that's probably how it's going to be with networking as well. You know, it's going to be a little uncomfortable at the beginning, but really putting ourselves out there um, and being and owning who we are and why it isn't. This is another career thing, just like taking your board exams, just like, um, learning how to take care of patients on the wards like this is part of our careers and no one is going to do it for us I think that's the really important uh, message kind of to your point just now Ira I love that you have created a, a curriculum around this and are <laughs> you know teaching or have been teaching at a pit and hopefully you can continue to carry that forward and I'm glad that you can join us today to talk about it yeah um, we wanted to shift gears a little bit and um, since we're physically here at the meeting where you were the plenary speaker, which was amazing. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> your your opening plenary was History Has Its Eyes on You, Race and Justice in Academic Medicine. And it really was just such a, a well-designed and hard-hitting talk about the history of racism in medicine and also some hopeful movements of, of where things are moving in the future, hopefully for the better. Um, what surprised you the most this morning around the process of the talk or the journey to get here to AIM? Um, or coming up with the content. Yeah, so again, I think going back to networking, so the first time that I met my um, 
primary care program director was at a conference. So I met Dr. Valerie Stone um, at a SNMA regional conference in Boston in 2012. Um, literally the day before we applied for residency, like our residency applications went in. Um, and she advised that I apply to MGH's primary care program, which I didn't know existed. I was just applying to internal medicine. That's all I knew. Um, and sh so we met at this conference. It was for underrepresented in medicine um, medical students. Me and my friend drove up to Boston, like a whole thing from New York. Um, and again, again, I met Valerie. She's the one who suggested I applied. I literally, like the next day in a Panera, like, um, <laughs> next door, put in my application and added MGH to that. And so literally I would never have applied to that residency, I think, without having met her. Um, fast forward a few months later, I get into residency there and fast forward a few years later. So September 2020, she invites me to give grand rounds at the Brigham where she now is. Um, and my grand rounds was basically a spin from this talk. And so over the last like two and a half years, I've had the chance to like update this talk and curate this talk. But really, it was so cool that um, an opportunity to go to residency where I was, an opportunity that my former program director gave me to um, be able to give a talk on a big stage and hopefully make this bigger stage that we're on today a little bit more comfortable um, and really special. Uh, all started with a little bit of networking back in back in over a decade ago, which is kind of crazy. That's amazing. And also just like shout out to the meta part of this, which, uh, you know, I had to say it, Molly, <laughs> I know you know. Um, which is true, like that networking led you to this conference. And we are now, you know, doing this podcast about networking. So just um, highlight to Dr. Stone and amazing power of that. Just to dive a little bit into the talk tubes. I wonder, um, you mentioned kind of the five D's, the approach um, to make medical education or academic medicine um, more anti-racist. How, you know, would you suggest that educators really push themselves a little bit further, whether it's within the framework of the five D's or kind of uh, even practical tips following from that to really address race and justice in um, health professions education? Yeah. So it's, you know, the five D's are uh, a way to kind of a framework rather to think about how we can achieve anti-racism and health equity. And, you know, whether it's desegregating our health care, which we all work in health systems that unfortunately, even before we were ever born, were residing in segregated communities, but even till today have some um, um, some ways that they can be segregated. We talked a little bit about resident clinics, which we all trained in and, um, and some of us precept in still and how even where I trained, they was very segregated who was going into those settings. And so I think really thinking about the policies as educators, like our students and trainees are kind of in the weeds of, of the science, in the weeds of the patient care. Um, but we have a chance to kind of take a step back and think about things like the health system segregation, things like what are some of the policies within our medical schools and centers that and clinics rather um, that have existed forever and are like seemingly colorblind and no one's really thinking like, is that differentially impacting people of color? Um, and I think kind of getting back and taking a step back rather now that we've gone through our training, we don't have any more not too many boards to take almost only every 10 years, um, but can really get into some of the practice of medicine and, and, and start to address some of the ways that racism shows up in, in healthcare. And thinking back on, on your career as an educator, has doing research in this area and speaking around this um, changed your approach to teaching? Yeah. So I think the 
I brought up during the talk today, one of the best lessons that I learned during was as a resident um, from one of my chief residents. Again, there's chiefs surrounding us, including here in the room with us. Um, and so she really just taught me how to give a talk. And like, again, I was an intern. We were kind of forced <laughs> against our will in some ways to give a, a, um, a second year talk. And so she was preparing me for this talk um, and literally just walked me through, like, how do you create slides? What's the first slide supposed to be? The objective slides, et cetera. Um, and it's been so great to be able to kind of take those lessons down the road from like the five minute talk as a second year resident to then the 10 minute talk as a third year to giving a clinical vignette. Me and Ira were talking about SGIM 2014, where I got to present a case to, versus giving a talk like this. And so I really do feel like having those key core lessons and to like make sure you tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them and then remind them what you told them. Um, make sure you have a flow for your talk, whatever it is, whether it's a case or it's research. Um, and I really do have opportunity to like present science case, um, scientific research and present clinical cases to like present something like what we talked about today. But I think all those core lessons are always the same um, and always kind of leave people with a little bit of hope in whatever message you're sharing, which it's easier said than done when sharing on tough topics like race and medicine. Um, and I think that for me, at least personally, that's been so key in this work. Yes, dropping pearls left and right. Um, in case anyone forgot, we are in fact at a meeting <laughs> at um, AIM 23. And what an amazing conference it has been thus far. And we're hoping to kind of apply the practical tips that um, Tubes you've shared so far to this conference. And I wonder if we can pivot from maybe Jasmine's perspective in the case to actually the faculty that she was coming to kind of hear from at the interest group meeting. And this interest group meeting is happening, let's say, the week before the conference that we're at. And the two faculty that are presenting at that interest group meeting are actually discussing their excitement about the conference. And one of them turns to the other and says, man, how do you work these meetings? Now, Tubes, if this question was coming to you, I wonder how you would answer it. I mean, you and I have been to so many meetings together, and so I can confidently say you're an A++++ networker at meetings. So please share your secrets. You know, how do you how do you do it? Yeah, so lots of hydration um, for <laughs> to be sure. Um, so my bestie from residency, uh, Natalie Kong, is really like um, shocked by how I can stay sane in these conferences and hates going to conferences with me because of how crazy I am at uh, trying to connect with people. Um, and I think that's been a blessing for me, again, to be able to like, have good friends like yourself. And now Molly is going to be a great friend <laughs> that I get to meet at conferences. Um, but really, like so many opportunities have come from, from quote unquote working these meetings. And so whether it's getting up for the 7 a.m. interest group session at some of the conferences we attend, because that's the like small group where you can actually get to meet people one on one as opposed to sitting in a dark room in a row at a plenary. Right. And get to have real conversations with people who um, are more senior, more uh, more ahead in their career, but also with folks like um, medical students like Jasmine who are starting out and they can't usually meet or email us or connect with us. So really like committing to quote unquote attending the meeting um, beyond just the bigger sessions, I think has been key. Um, again, I've talked about like being prepared. So knowing the people that I want to meet. So having like this, um, the off script agenda is <laughs> what I've been doing. And so literally there's like the 
formal agenda and the schedule and the planner, but I always like literally print my own out and like write in when I'm going to connect with people, like whether it's between workshop sessions, it's between lunches uh, or during the lunch hours after workshops and things like that. Um, and really like emailing people weeks in advance of the meeting because all of our schedules get filled up to say, Hey, you know, we haven't had a chance to connect all year. When can we connect at this meeting? Um, and I think those have been really helpful. And of course, like still trying to have fun and enjoy the purpose of the conference, actually going to poster sessions because you never know who you're going to see at some of those sessions as well. Um, and I think posters are a cool way to connect with people, even though like some people are like, oh, I got to create a poster. I'm just standing awkwardly alone in this aisle. Um, but it's like you never again know who you're going to see at these um, sessions and very different from a formal talk where you just can't talk to the person giving those talks other than the uh, more of a comment than a question, people who show up in <laughs> in the middle of the room <laughs> microphones. Yeah. Uh, so those are maybe some of the things that I've been doing. Those are those are fantastic tips. Yeah, I, I think I, I heard somewhere kind of the idea of looking at the schedule and thinking about, are you trying to attend a session for the content or are you trying to attend the session because you admire the the person themselves and want to mm -hmm. foster that relationship? And mm -hmm. I think being explicit in, in your own mind, but ahead of time can help you think about reaching out to them ahead of time, planning mm -hmm. something outside of the session or yeah. just how you might meet up with them, you know, just reaching out to them after the session occurs. Yeah, for sure. And I think easier to do when we're on faculty as opposed to like Jasmine probably is not going <laughs> to be able to feel as confident walking up to a new person. I remember again, like my first SGIM was in 2014 in Toronto uh, and my medical school preceptor was at the meeting and she's like, oh, you should meet um, the SGIM. I think she was president that year. She had some important role, Dr. Giselle Corby Smith. And I was like, I've read her work around race and trust in medicine. Like this is a like famous person to me basically. And I was super awkward. It was like probably the most awkward I've been meeting another person. Don't know why. Um, and she's like, okay, <laughs> great to meet you. <laughs> and now like me and Giselle are like super close. I'm like texting her about my move and things like that. And so uh, obviously you can come back from some of the networking fails is another important point to make. Um, and just highlighting like, yeah, if you're not prepared really to connect with someone or if we don't have our like elevator talk prepared, like it does kind of become a like, Hi, like meeting a celebrity, like yeah. uh, in the airport. And so just Can I take a <laughs> selfie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like say nothing, just silence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, have, were there any other tips that you want kind of listeners to take with you um, to their next professional society meeting? Yeah. So again, I think being prepared, uh, as we talked about, is a really important tip. Um, again, it takes time. And so I feel like a lot of us, when we go to conferences, this is the schedule. Like you had clinic on the Friday before your flight at 4 p.m. You're like finishing your notes at the airport <laughs> while you're waiting. And then you're finally realizing like, oh, shoot, I need to like find out what sessions I'm going to be going to tomorrow morning. You like stumble into the plenary, like barely caffeinated. Uh, and you didn't really have a chance to prepare and connect with people. And so I think as best as we can, we on our crazy schedules being intentional about finding the time to um, see who's attending, see who we want to like you. Um, Molly mentioned who we want to actually connect with and meet with just for content or for their fan fangirling um, purposes. Um, and really thinking about these conferences as more than just a CME checkbox, but a way to tend that garden of, of networkies as uh, we've talked about already. I love that because it feels like very real world application given most of us do maybe wake up at 
6.42 for that 7 a.m. meeting or maybe 7.48 for the 8 a.m. plenary. <laughs> Not saying that's happened before to me, but um, I just feel like I appreciate the kind of practical nature yeah. of that. Tubes, what are your main take-home points for our listeners? I know we've covered a lot, but is there kind of the things you want to leave folks with? Top three, maybe? Yeah, top three. Okay. Gotta love a good three. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it can be two, whatever you want. No, no, no. It's I, I love threes. Um, so being genuine, again, about an authentic, uh, about who you are. Like, don't um, pretend to be a health disparities researcher interested in AFib when you meet me just because <laughs> you know that that's what I do. Um, so, like, be authentic and real about um, yourself and what you're bringing to the table because um, we can all learn from each other. I think that that's huge. Um, the second is to be prepared. Again, <laughs> like we talked about, easier said than done. Um, really kind of doing the pre-conference homework um, before getting to the meeting. Um, and the third, I think, is to really put put yourself out there. I like have the have your go to lines, your elevator pitch, like we talked about, um, but really kind of confidently get into into those rooms and shake hands. Now that we can do that, or elbow bump, whatever it is we're <laughs> feeling comfortable doing with these days, um, and that this is meeting in person as we're starting to pick up now is way better than Zoom. The Zoom chat does not quite help networking happen in the same way. So, absolutely. Well, that, that is amazing. Thank you so much. I can see why you are as successful as you are. Clearly, you're very talented and very have, sweet. A, have a good way of sharing that information. So oh, I wonderful. appreciate you. Um, is there anything you want to plug? Anything that you're excited plug. that you're working on or that we should be looking out for down the line? Uh, so always plugging our podcast, even though I'm not as like intimately part of it every single day. I'm so like proud of our medical students who are um, doing the work now, leading it. I think literally today we just dropped um, the 20th episode of the Anti-Racism in Medicine podcast. So um, shout out to the awesome group leading that. And that's the clinical problem solvers. Exactly. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah great to talk with y'all. <laughs> Well, Molly, I will start my take-home points by sharing the brief history of Iran Tubes and how we met, but I promise it has relevance, which is that we were at a interview for residency at Columbia, and Columbia has a sign that says, amazing things are happening here, and you can decide where to put that comma based on how you feel about Columbia, but thanks again, <laughs> Columbia, for interviewing both of us. And he and I both had the same reaction to the sign, which is that we laughed, and we kind of pointed it out to everyone else at the interview day, but the only people who cared or responded were the other person. So he responded to me, I responded to him. And so we have been kind of interview trail buddies, residency buddies, um, conference friends. And really it was that uh, day when we both showed up to an interview, something very high stakes, something very um, you know serious uh, with our authentic selves. And we're able to make that connection and something that's really gave us, given us an amazing near peer uh, mentorship relationship and kind of networking at its best. Um, but I will say that one of the main things I uh, took away from today is just that recommendation from tubes to truly show up to a networking encounter that, you know, where you come up to somebody after a workshop or you find them, um, as after they've done a, you know, a session and really are your authentic self and can kind of make that connection and see where it leads you. What about you, Molly? What about you, Molly? Absolutely. Well, he was just very inspiring to talk with and clearly, a. Uh, an excellent networker and had some amazing examples of how that's allowed him to advance his career. Uh, I think for me, it doesn't come nearly as naturally. Um, and so having very concrete examples of things to try and work on is, is very helpful for me. So I loved his recommendation to really plan out kind of follow up uh, with people that you network with. And so 
a month before you're planning to go to a conference, take a look at the schedule, take a look at the attendees and say, hey, this person I met last year is going to be there. I'm going to message them you know, weeks in advance and say, I'd love to catch up. Let's grab coffee. When are you free? Or even if you notice that someone isn't going to be attending, still reach out and say, hey, it was great meeting you last year at AIM. I see you won't make it this year, but I'd love to just check in and see how you're doing. Um, so having kind of that follow-up plan of making sure you're continuing those relationships that you build at a conference um, through time is, is really helpful. Totally. And I will say for those of you who are like, wow, that's so far advanced. And I hear you. I am definitely somebody who's like the night before the conference. I'm like, ooh, I probably should have <laughs> when I'm going to go and which sessions I'm going to go to. And even though Tubes and I are close friends, his practices haven't quite rubbed on, off on me yet. But as we say, practice makes perfect. So I encourage y'all to um, really give that a shot, even if the practical or the only thing possible is to do that um, conference schedule grooming the night before, um, really would kind of encourage that we heard today. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project. Thanks to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to the Podpaste team for editing our audio. Thanks to our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. And a reminder that most episodes, but not this one because we wanted to have a quick turnaround, are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya. Thank you so much for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.